Intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The challenge here is we know the problem with border security. We need our borders stronger, strong, secure, especially with the caravan and others. Uh, in the House version, we have $5 billion. The Senate version has $1.6. And what the president is saying is, I want a deal. The economy is now in a 3% plus trajectory. Uh, since President Trump came in, the seven quarters, uh, we're running, I believe the number is 3.1%, and it's 3.3% so far for 20, 2018. Well, more questions after transcripts of Jim Comey's closed-door meeting with lawmakers. They were officially released yesterday, and the former FBI director admitting nearly he couldn't recall or remember more than 200 times. Well, he wouldn't answer a lot of questions about the FISA process, but I think it's notable that in the information presented to the FISA court, there was not an accurate description of who paid for what. This is another area where Comey's testimony today contradicted his own lawyer. Well, the words that best describe Comey's testimony are selective amnesia. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us today. It is... Monday. We're in the week again and so much news, so much news and information. So let's talk about who's on the show today. We have Jesse Hathaway, a policy advisor from the Heartland Institute. He's coming on to talk to us about how our 2019 social security taxes could go up. And so we're going to discuss the ramifications of that and kind of go into a little bit of info on it with him. And he's been on the program before. Great guest. Looking forward to speaking to him. We are also going to be talking about this breaking news, a couple of different stories. First off, Judge Kavanaugh swung over to the liberal side of the bench. We knew we knew where Judge, Judge, Justice Roberts was going. We knew where Justice Roberts was headed um, with, with Kennedy leaving. The most powerful position on the court is that of a swing justice, the one everyone will pay attention to, the one everyone will kowtow to, the one whose name will be spoken in, in every column and every news story. The swing vote, and so that's going to be Judge Roberts now, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice on the Supreme Court. And we're seeing, uh, you know, Kavanaugh's acting a bit like an abused uh, spouse, uh, the going to the side of the people who just spent, I don't know, how long was it? Almost 90 days beating him and his family into a pulp. And I guess now he's he knows who his overlords are. He did not want to go up against uh, Planned Parenthood. He didn't want to have to side with the law, which is that taxpayers should not be forced to fund Planned Parenthood and their abortion business through Medicaid. But he handed them a victory by refusing to hear the case so that they could be forced to rule on the constitutionality of, of states defunding Planned Parenthood, which is within their right. Of course, God is in control. There is a way around that. We'll see uh, what lawyers and different legal minds around the country come up with as a way to continue this effort. It won't stop. Nothing will stop this. It will continue. The defunding of Planned Parenthood, the ever-increasing number of millennials and young students, and even kids who they are too young to vote, but they understand that life begins in the womb and that what's growing in their mom's tummy is a baby, not a choice. They know that, and it's technology and God's grace that we have to thank for that. And so we'll see more uh, wins on the personal side and the lowering of the number of abortions had in this country. But Planned Parenthood remains a, uh, a demon that must be fought. And so, you know, Judge Kavanaugh, very disappointing. We're going to discuss a little, few more of the details of that. And then I have this bit of audio for you from the head of the International Monetary Fund. This is not a piece of audio you're going to hear on CNN or CBS or NBC. 
And the reason you won't hear it is because she's talking about the probability that we're going to continue to have a booming economy in spite of, you know, everything being arrayed against the president and what he's been able to do in the way of turning the economy around. Now, I know it's it's important to people that we, you know, remain on focus and on target. And sometimes people feel as if it, by paying attention to the economy, we're somehow not being godly or not being Christian. And that is absolutely not the case. We have every opportunity to put God first, especially with our finances, while still paying attention to the economy and wanting someone to be in charge who would make economic conditions conducive to more people working. Because the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. In our society, we don't, we don't adhere to that biblical principle because we have welfare. I'm not against social safety net programs. I don't want to see people starving to death. But the motivator that a hungry stomach is, that seeing your children go hungry is, that knowing that there's really very few options out there to take care of you, it's a motivator. It makes people want to be gainfully employed. It wants pe- people, people will stay in jobs that they don't like in order to keep getting that paycheck. That is important. We have nullified that kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's an instigator of work. We have to find a happy medium. Smaller government would help, but first we have to have someone in charge who understands that government is, that's not the job creator. Government is not our source. And so we see that in Donald Trump a lot. And this is a really good interview. And then, of course, we're going to talk about this Nebraska elementary school banning Santa, Christmas trees, candy canes, reindeer, my little elf hat would not, the color red, the color green, the little cream colored ears. None of this would be going down at their school. We'll talk about what happened to the principal, why she did what she did, and what the response of the remaining of the remaining school buildings in the district and the administrators was. And we'll get to that. And of course, we'll take your calls at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Our encouragement for today is Psalm 36. I have to say, you know, so the Psalms are like something special because, and the whole Bible has this quality, but there's something about the Psalms they actually seem new every time you read them. Um, so it's, this, is, this is a beautiful psalm. It says, For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. This is such a beautiful psalm to meditate on, whether you're in the high place or the low place, whether things are going relatively well or whether you have turmoil and storms raging. This is such a beautiful psalm because in this psalm, David actually lays his heart out to the Lord 
as he does in so many of the Psalms that he wrote, he is so unabashedly a friend to his father in heaven. He doesn't hide anything from God. He always opens himself up completely and shares every bit of what's on his heart. He rails against his enemies. He complains about those who would oppress him or set upon him to do him harm. But in the end, he always encourages himself by speaking back to God an admiration and a love that is deep and abiding. He truly enjoys the presence of the Lord. And he sings of the Lord's grace and mercy, and he praises him over and over again in so many different ways. He talks about how good God is to us and to him. And he, he almost serenades God in the Psalms. And then he says, <laughs> in ways at the end, it's somewhere in the Psalms that what I noticed about David's Psalms is he'll say, may the foot of the proud not come against me, you know, toss down, throw down my evil do, throw down those who would do evil against me, throw down my enemies. He, 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 he uses the terms of war because he was a warrior to ask the Lord to vanquish his, his enemies and those who would do him harm. And so I, if, if David could, if David could ask the Lord to defend him and to be his shield and the one who, you know, keeps the, the enemy away from him, how much less can we? we? We can ask God to do the same for us. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. And so I encourage you, if you are, uh, for, for encouragement for today on Stacy on the Right, I encourage you, if you have what you feel are enemies or those who are, you know, coming against you or what have you, it's not about insulting them, but pour out your heart to the Lord. As David did in the Psalms, we can rely on God to not only hear our cries, but to answer them because he cares for us. So that's the encouragement for today. Um, so let's get into this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of, I'm reeling. I am. I'm reeling. This was an opportunity for Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh. I keep calling him Judge. I'm still not used to him being on the Supreme Court all the way. And I'm glad he's there. Um, I, I'm hoping that this isn't going to be one of those things where, you know, the Republicans have a, 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 a habit of picking people to go on the Supreme Court who then, once they're on there, behave like liberals. And after what Judge Kavanaugh went through, I can't believe he wouldn't relish the opportunity to mash his naysayers' faces in the dirt by giving a purely constitutional ruling. Um, just before we get to that, let's go to the phones real quick. We have Lisa in Ohio. Lisa, thank you for calling into the show today. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, um... I'd like to make a comment first about Judge Kavanaugh. I maybe he's afraid right now to jump in, just you don't want to start a whole bunch of stuff. But I think that he's going to come around because we were all behind him and, you know, stood with him. So I think he will stand with us in the end. I just think he's not ready to do that yet because he don't want to. Because you remember that was a lot of what it was about when they were um, trying to get him in. And then also I'd like to say something about the, Government assistance, I think it's all wrong. I think instead of giving people government assistance when they have nothing, they should give it to them when they need a little bit to make the ends meet, just to help out a little bit. And I think then that maybe they could, um, uh, I'm sorry, I thought I lost you. (laughs) No, no, I'm still here. They would have an incentive to work. Well, um, so FGA... um, 
is a not-for-profit that does that. They actually teach, um, they teach legislators at the state level how to improve their public assistance programs so that they're helping people get off of welfare, but they're still, so they're still helping them. And I understand what you're saying. I'm, there's, there's a place where a family can get into a rut where they're not, they're not on public assistance. They're still taking care of themselves, but things are starting to spiral out of control. And if we had something to help people get over that, that had a little bit of accountability to it, I think we would see fewer people actually go on to welfare. And the truth is, in spite of what we often talk about on conservative radio and what you see in op-eds and things like that, generational welfare is a small segment. The, the bulk of people who go on to welfare go on it for a specific amount of time where they're literally, they can't, they can't make it on their own. And then they... Um, they get off. They they go on. They stay on for a bit, and then they get off. So it really is an assistance during a time of need, and then they're off again. Um, generational welfare is a problem, but it is not like the the bulk of the people are not generationally on welfare. Now that statistic could be changing. I know new numbers come out every couple of years where they're tracking and and keeping an eye on who's doing what. And I would say, you know. It's possible that those numbers are changing due to the large number of illegal immigrants who are currently on our welfare system. And because of that being kind of a, a social safety net that doesn't exist in their own home country. Um, let's go one more phone call real quick. Randy in Louisiana. Thanks for calling Hello? the show today. Hey, how are you? Hey, thank, thank you for taking my call. Not put sure. me on call block. You're all right. <laughs> well, sure. let's hear. Now, this guy, Kavanaugh, now, he was in bed with the Bushes and the Clintons and the Bushes, and I don't know about Obama, but all these, all, all of those three people, they're all sleeping in the same bed. Hello? Oh, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm... Well, I'm... I don't know. I was... I mean, obviously, he did work for uh, the... Bushes during the Ken Starr things and all that. I mean, he was he's he's been around the block a few times. Um, but I was hoping that he'd be constitutionally limited and that he would stick with that. And that means they should have taken those cases. Anyway, we're going to see what happens with it. I'll give you the rest of those details. Right now, we're going to go to the break. When we get back, we will have our first guest on the program today. Keep it here. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. 2019 is upon us, and we're going to be going back to Washington, D.C. and to Williamsburg for our spiritual heritage tours. And if you've been wanting to go, maybe this is the year for you. These tours fill up several months in advance, and one of the reasons they do is because we have an actual historian, a professional historian that comes on our tour with us. His name is Stephen McDowell. He's the president of the Providence Foundation, and he knows more about early American history, especially the Christian influence on early American history. He knows more than anybody I know. So if you want to go with us, you can find out more information at spiritualheritagetours.com. That's in June and September. Pick the month you want to go. Find out more information at spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. My Aunt Rebecca, who's in heaven now, used to tell the story of an incident from childhood that taught her a lifelong lesson. One Sunday morning, Rebecca informed her mother that she was not going to go to church. To her shock, her mother said, okay, that's fine. And so Rebecca stayed home. She thought everything was fine until after lunch. See, Sunday afternoon was when the kids would go out and play and have a great time together. But this time, her mother said to Rebecca, you're not going out today. You couldn't go to church, so you're not going out to play. And tonight, when the rest of us go get ice cream, you're not going either. My Aunt Rebecca said she cried all afternoon because she desperately wanted to be with her friends. She learned the hard way that you don't do what you want to do and get what you want to have. So it is with prayer. You may say, how does prayer relate to all of this? Sometimes we feel as if God is obligated to do whatever we ask him to do, and so we take verses out of context or we have some desire where we say, God, do it for me. Never mind that we have ignored him and haven't met our spiritual responsibilities. Jesus warned us about that in John chapter 15, verse 7. Notice the condition Jesus places upon prayer. He says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here's what I want you to remember today. To not meet God's conditions is to abuse the privilege of prayer. Have you surrendered fully to him? Have you allowed his word to possess your mind? If so, pray with confidence and expectancy. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Join Crawford tomorrow for another Legacy Moment. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. I'm so glad to be with you today. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and I hope you're enjoying um, either if you're in the part of the country where you have fall weather, you lucky duck. I'm so happy for you. And if you're like me in these 20 some odd degree temps, you know, I hope you're staying warm. I hope all of your fireplaces or, or heaters or central heating or whatever you've got, gas, whatever, I hope it's all working well and that you're warm and cozy and maybe you even have your cup of coffee going because right now you're in for a treat. We have Jesse Hathaway. He's a policy advisor at the Heartland Institute, one of our favorite uh, public policy organizations and think tanks where we can always go for the very best fresh information. Jesse, thanks for joining the show today. Well, uh, thank you for having me on the show today. It's a very kind welcome. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm really... Uh, I respect greatly what you guys are doing. And this latest piece that you have out, bad news, your 2019 Social Security taxes could rise by $279 or more. I don't know. Should we be happy about that because it'll keep us from going insolvent? Or should we be mad because that's more money out of our pocket that really is kind of going up into the air? Well, the answer is uh, yes. And, and on the flip side, no. Uh, the yes is that we should be happy that this uh, tax hike uh, is uh, being triggered because this tax hike is actually being triggered by increasing uh, average uh, earnings from, from everyday Americans like you, me, and all your listener, listeners. Mm. The no on that is, uh, is, is because it's a tax hike, and for the individuals who 
will be affected by this uh, automatic, uh, tr- you know, the triggering of this uh, tax change. The it's going, it will be more uh, money out of their pockets, and it's going to be more money out of the pockets of uh, business owners. So it's so there's a there's a bright side, but there's also it, it is at the end of the day a tax hike. So is let's let's talk real numbers here. Some people might hear, um, you know, two hundred and seventy nine dollars. Is that per month or for the entire year for twenty nineteen? That is per. That is total for the whole year. So starting on the first of January, the maximum amount of earnings that's going to be subject to the what's called the Social Security payroll tax. Uh, people see it on their paychecks as the FICA, uh, federal income, or rather uh, federal insurance contributions act tax, uh, which also goes into paying for Medicare as well as Social Security. There's a limit over which there's a cap over which if you don't if you make under this amount, you don't pay this uh, particular uh, line item, or you're not going to be affected by this. Rather. But if you make more, uh, if individuals make more than $132,900, they are going to see this. They are going to have more money taken out of their paycheck collected by the government. Because, you know, Social Security is uh, funded by a uh, a 12.4% payroll tax on wages up to this cap with half of that amount paid by workers, and the other half paid by the by the business owner, unless they're self-employed, or a you know a nine ninety contractor, other classifications as well. You, the people in that case actually pay that full twelve point four percent tax, and that money goes into the Social Security and the Medicare fund. The so, but that's, like I said, this is triggered just by Increase you know, people are making more money, so the way Social Security is set up, they're increasing that cap. The problem, or the bad news, you know that we got the good news so that people are making more. The bad news is that really no amount of money, no amount of tax hikes and tax changes is going to make Social Security solvent again. That's it's just a function of math. You know, back in the 1960s, there were there was about five people uh, who were putting into Social Security for every one person who was with you know taking money out. We're now down to about I think it's a figure about 2.5, two and a half people putting in money who to for every one person who takes out. So there's fewer people putting into the fund than are taking out, or rather, on the flip side, more people taking out than uh, uh, are putting in. And so Social Security is actually already, in some cases, some of the funds, some of the buckets, as I like to refer to them, mm-hmm. some of those buckets are already going empty. Uh, you know, back in 2015, uh, Congress uh, took money from one bucket, in that, uh, in that arrangement, the Old Age Survivors Insurance Fund, to f- fill up another bucket that had gone empty. 
which is the disability insurance bucket. So basically, we have a setup. We have two buckets that both have holes in them. And instead of doing something to patch those buckets or to plug the hole or just something where we are, our leaders in Congress and, and our leaders in Washington are pouring that water from one bucket to the other, ignoring the fact that both of the buckets have a hole in them. And eventually, just because the math does not add up, you know, we always we talk about, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. But, uh, you know, the math is going to stop, is going to hit, and there's going to be no more water to pour from one bucket to another. You know, and if you or I did this kind of scheme, the kind of scheme that Social Security is effectively is, we would be charged with running a Ponzi scheme. But because it's, but when the government does it, it's called just another day at the Social Security Administration. So, this is kind of a symptom of a larger problem when it comes to government spending. And that's that, that problem, you know, is federal entitlement. You know, we're talking Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. You know, we're on, you know, we're on track for 45 cents out of every dollar that the government spends going to, Medi- going to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and so on. You know, and that's going to crowd out, if you will, spending on other things that the government needs to do, the military, infrastructure repair, you know, education, you know, because the government's in the education business. And so basically, because Social Security is gobbling up the budget, they have to spend more, which means they have to tax more. And so that we get into things like, you know, the deficit, you know, with the deficit in October, you know, the end of the fiscal year, fiscal year uh, 2018, you know, that it hit $782 billion. You know, we're on track to hit $1 trillion, so that's a one with 12 zeros at the end, as soon as October of next year. And Social Security is just one of these all the government programs out there. And we know this problem is coming. We see this in the report for the, uh, that the trustees of Social Security put out. We see this in the report that the CBO puts out. We, you know, we know this problem has been coming a long time, and yet we do not, we have not done anything about it. So, like I said, the good news, people are making more. The bad news, the government's spending more. Well, I think one of the parts, because you, you've just given us a really in-depth dive into this, and I hope that people, I know sometimes when you're talking about taxes, people are like, oh, you know, but it's really important that we understand this. And the funding of it is, I guess, the part that's so depressing. The other part that I found a little bit, um, I, I don't know, it's it's interesting to me, obviously, because it's the the, the line item that I find myself in, which is self-employed which means instead of having employer pay half and you pay half, you pay the whole bit yourself. So it's an increase of $558. But that's only if you're making the 132900 that you see the increase. Or, or am I getting that wrong? That's, yeah, that's correct. We're only talking about, with this particular tax hike, we're only talking about uh, an estimated 
million people will see that uh, the Social Security tax increase on their uh, paychecks uh, in 2019. So it's a small, a small portion of the uh, tax-paying public that will see this. But you know that's going to have effects on other people nonetheless. It may not be a first-order effect, if you will. But any time you increase taxes, you know that's every every dollar that you take from an individual and gives it gives the government takes from an individual. That's a dollar that could have been spent on something effectively useful. That dollar that is no longer available to be spent could have had effects on other people as well. So really, the there's this multiplier effect when you add that in. A dollar, an extra dollar given that the government takes, has a cost of more than one dollar. It could be something dollar twenty-five. It could be a dollar fifty. Uh, depends, you know, it really depends on a whole host of things. But the fact remains is that there are these. Not only just there are the first order effects, but that you know they'll have second and third order effects. You know, rippling out, not just on me, not just on you, but every, everybody. And so that's why, you know, that's, that's the fundamental reason why we talk about, you know, needing to reduce taxes, reduce the burden of government. But spending is the other side of that equation. And that's, too often, we don't think about, we think about the tax changes, but we don't, we, we don't, think, we don't think about changing or spending, the government spending habits. But I, I just, so... We, I know you've seen these studies. So they have these surveys where they'll they'll even take Republican likely voters, you know, so people who voted frequently in the past have been religious voters and they're claimed to be Republican. So not people who are independent or whatever. And they'll ask them if they want to see smaller government, and lower taxes, and they automatically answer yes to those. But then when they say, well, would you like to see funding for the library cut? Because that's a way to reduce taxes or some other program, they immediately say, no, no, the library has to be funded. The zoo has to be funded. This, so everyone has pet projects. Museums have to be funded. And they can't seem to separate off that every single thing that we decide to fund with public money means it has to come from tax dollars, and those tax dollars come from us, and they have to be decreased because people feel like these things are for, quote, unquote, the public good, not realizing that philanthropic organizations would step in and take care of fundraising for the zoo, the museums, et cetera, if the tax dollars weren't funding it. But because tax dollars are funding it, they go around and renovate all the libraries, renovate you know, the zoo, add on to these different things because they have this what feels like unlimited pot of money to pull out of. How do you get what you just shared about the, the money? The tax money going up means f- less dollars to flow around in the economy and boost our GDP and boost job you know, creation. How do you get that message into people's heads when they have a disconnect between those two very fundamental concepts? Well, I mean, as you said, you know, nobody, no politician has ever lost an election by promising more stuff, more services. And it's very unpopular. It's very politically difficult to say, to say no. No, we don't have the money to do this. We don't have the ability to promise to, to deliver the moon and all the stars to constituencies. And, 
you know, we see that, as you said, you know, we see this not just with Democrats, but we see this with Republicans, too. It's, you know, everybody loves smaller government. Uh, you know, most, well, I guess uh, liberals would not. But the people who say they love small government love small government, except when we start talking about things that they, that they like, Social Security, perhaps, you know, uh, you know, we talk about everybody loves the military, but there's a there's a lot of waste in the military, uh, you know, and there has been effort to rein in spending, especially on the military side of things. You know, we talk about the the sequester from several years ago. We talk about the you know the uh, Budget Control Act, but you know, it seems like people in Washington. If they spent half the time that they've that they've spent over the years trying to figure out ways to get around the Budget Control Act, to try to get around the sequester, which you know, if you remember back in that time when it was uh, made into law, nobody liked it. Democrats didn't like it. Republicans didn't like it. It was quite literally the solution uh, to a problem. It was you know, Obama did uh, enacted the sequester as a threat. He didn't actually want to do that because it was supposed to get people to, it was supposed to get Congress to the table to avoid. And they, they went off, narrowly went off the fiscal cliff there. And we have the sequester, which I, you know, quite literally the sequester was a great idea. And I wish they would have uh, gone a little bit further and actually cut spending as opposed to just reducing the rate of spending. But, you know, that's a good, we need, so we need more, uh, 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 spending control, not less. So, like I said, if Congress spent half the time that they've spent over the years trying to get around the uh, fiscal con- the fiscal conservative uh, solutions that about the the uh, the budget caps represented, if they spent that on trying to solve the problem. I think things will be a lot uh, better today than the, than they actually are. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the deficit is as important today as it was under Obama, as it was under George W. Bush, as it was under Clinton, and, and all, you know, all the way back. And if there's no, there's no reason other than politics to that nothing, that the, the debt and deficit problem have not been solved, right. or at least made effort, well, an effort to be made. Jesse Hathaway, thank you so much for joining us today. Fantastic to talk to you. Policy advisor at the Heartland Institute, heartlandinstitute.org. Thanks for your time today. We'll be back with more right after this, 866-963-2037. Right back. This is Marnita from the Marnita Show with Parenting Points. Mira, Mira. Back in the day, folks would tell children, do as I say. The premise there was, I am the adult, you are the child. I outrank you. Therefore, I need not explain myself. Just do what you are told. Well, through the years, it's been discovered that children don't always do what they are told. More often, they will do what they see. If you are sincerely trying to shape your child's mind, be the change you want to see in them. Demonstration is the best view. When they see you acting a certain way, you can be sure it will rub off on them. If you do good, they will too. If you do bad, they're likely to repeat it. Be the mirror that reflects the best image in your children. For more parenting, 
Tune in to The Marnita Show right here on your favorite station. I was smoking meth and crack and doing heroin all in the same night. I was enjoying the ride for a little while until it turned into a nightmare. I came to Adult and Teen Challenge, and I am the person that God wanted me to be, and it feels good not to do drugs. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, Adult and Teen Challenge can help. There are centers across the country, and you can find the one nearest you at 855-END-ADDICTION or at TeenChallengeUSA.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Donald Trump's America. President Trump is holding to his claim of no collusion between his campaign and Russia, but members of Congress aren't so inclined to agree just yet. Independent Senator Angus King on Fox News Sunday said the Mueller probe showing of a pattern of contact could raise more questions. There's nothing definitive, uh, but there's nothing that, ex that exonerates the president either. GOP Senator Marco Rubio says there needs to be no interruption of the probe's process. I believe that Mr. Mueller's probe should continue and move forward unimpeded. A threat to that could be White House Chief of Staff John Kelly stepping down. Senator Chris Murphy said on ABC's This Week that Kelly's exit worries him because Kelly seems to have been a barrier to the president's firing of special counsel Mueller. I think that with his departure, certainly depending on who replaces him, uh, our concerns that Mueller may be on the chopping block uh, are, I think, more serious. Kelly's final day is expected to be January 2nd. Grinnell Scott, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Uh, we have a forecast for this year and next, which is around 3.7%. It's not bad, actually. And uh, we don't see signs of recession in the near term uh, based on the information we have at the moment. But it is true that if there are more tensions, if trade is under threats, if people sort of wonder, where should I invest? And should I completely change my supply chain? Uh, that will have an impact. It will have an impact on people because, you know, if you look at the low-income uh, family today, thanks to trade, the cost of living are reduced by two-thirds. So, you know, the clothes that we're wearing, the, the many of the things that we're using are made in Vietnam, Morocco, China, wherever. If we lose the benefit of that, then it will have an impact on consumers. We're not seeing it now, it's true, but that's the threat. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, place for us to be right now. So the voice that you just heard was the head of she is the head of the International Monetary Fund. Her name is Christine Lagarde, and she was discussing the global era in the economy and the global economy in the era of Trump. And uh, I, she said some things that are very, very, very important there. She was talking about. Um, her analysis of the International Monetary Fund's economic model, and they're forecasting U.S. GDP growth at 3.7%. This is an amazing number coming from an economy that was GDP of 1.7 to 2.3. 
under President Obama. Now, he had a couple of high quarters. He had a quarter at 4%. He had a couple of quarters, you know, in the mid threes. But overall, it was the non-recovery recovery. Remember that that slogan that media types trotted out because they wanted to kind of um, blunt the effects of it? Do you remember how they, they would sometimes mention in passing, they might give two or three minutes uh, in a total week's worth of news coverage, 24 hours a day, they might give two minutes to the fact that black unemployment was persistently high. And for black teens, it was up in the 50%. And I can't, I can't mention unemployment for any group without first, just as a caveat, as an aside, for those of us who are parents, for young adults, if you're a teenager yourself and you're listening, if you are not speaking proper English, showing up on time, wearing traditional business or business casual or interview attire, you are making yourself unemployable. And no amount of 3.7 GDP or 4% GDP is going to make you more employable. So you must first present yourself ready and approved to work. Someone who is saying, communicating through your dress, your appearance, being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, and your form of communication that you are not only ready to be employed, but that you are willing to submit to whatever it is that they're going to request you to do to be employed. This is, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is why people were so bent in Hollywood and liberal activists were so bent on destroying Bill Cosby. And I'm not talking about the stuff he did that contributed to his demise. I'm talking about the speeches he made about how black culture was deteriorating. And the, the part of the whole point of the Cosby show back in the day was to create an environment on television in which black families saw other black, another black family like themselves, but much more um, idealized. You know, they're, they're, these couples exist. I know couples like the Cosbys with, you know, three or four kids and both of the, the husband and wife are, you know, advanced educations and all of that. But there are other many, many more black families where maybe both of the parents don't have advanced educations, but they're professionals or they're, you know, they've been in their career fields for a significant amount of time and they're raising traditional uh, families in intact homes with, you know, a strong sense of values. This is not an anomaly, so th th but it wasn't represented on television. So Bill Cosby's intent there was to put it out there, this fun black family. And so by doing that, he made himself, and, and through his philanthropic work, he made himself a pillar in the community. The problem is he had all this stuff going on in the background that he'd engaged in that was like a trap laid in waiting for him. And so I honestly... There's no reason to dispute what the accusations were or any of that. The point is that the Cosby show, no matter his personal failings and the crimes he committed, still stands as an example that it, it works today. You can get the DVDs. You can take, get it online. You can watch it. You can actually see examples and things to emulate for an intact family. The family doesn't have to be white for us to say that's, that's a strong representation of what you want a family to look like. It didn't have any representation of, of Christianity or faith per se, but it was a strong representation of what an intact family looks like. And so, you, you know, you take from Hollywood, you just take what good you can get and, and work with it. But all of that kind of segue and tangent that I just went on to circle back around to say that 
we often look at, well, the economy was really poor under President Obama, or it doesn't change the fact that if the economy is booming and they really need people to work jobs, but a child shows up and they're refused to speak any English without using slang, or they can't hold their head up and put their shoulders back and look you in the eye and hold a conversation, they won't shake your hand or they give you the, the, you know, the dead fish handshake, or worse than that, they can't communicate because they haven't been properly educated and conditioned, socially conditioned on how to deal with adults, then really the economy is not the number one driver of unemployment for any sector of individuals. I can't let this conversation go on without pointing that out because culturally we have segments of our society that are moving further and further away from the norms yet still decrying the negative consequences of that. We have to connect the two together. Negative cultural norms yield negative outcomes for work, home, school, education, you name it, neighborhoods. We have to fix the cultural norms. Of course, you know, my, my number one fix for that is you got to get, you got to get in the Bible, got to get in the pew on Sunday and Wednesday, and maybe even Tuesday for Bible study. You got to get something going on. You got to start working on these things, not just waiting for some government person to pick up, you know, I, well, the, I, the economy is bad. Yeah, it may be bad, but when you're operating within what God has for you and you're putting God first, a bad economy can be the best economy in the world for you because you can make, be making money hand over fist. A good economy can be a better economy for you. It's God is not, he's not our giver man or genie in a bottle, but he promises that if we seek him first, he adds everything else. He's, and he doesn't lie. He can't. It's impossible for him to not tell the truth and his word is the truth. So, you know, I want, I want to see our government move into more decreasing the amount of spending, becoming more responsible, getting into zero-based budgeting. These are all things that should happen because they're using our tax dollars and they're wasting them. But we can't ignore the impact that culture has on whether or not someone can get a job. So let's go to the phones. We have Mike in Tennessee. Thank you so much for calling the show today. Hello, Stacy. Yeah, how you doing? Yeah, this is Mike in Tennessee. I was listening to your interview with the gentleman a while ago on the uh, entitlements, and uh, Social Security was never set up as an entitlement. It was set up to be the people's money, taken care of by the government, to, to aid the people in retirement. It is not an entitlement. It's our money. And I think that uh, that through the years that's been uh, politicized, I guess you'd say, and uh, I'd like to hear your comments on that. It was established, I believe, in the Roosevelt administration after the Depression to benefit the people in their retirement, not an entitlement program at all. All right. Thank you, Mike, for calling the show. And uh, so I've, I've said this before, and I don't mind saying it again. Um, this is one of those, uh, oh, what, are we, what are we saying here? Terminology drifts. Maybe that's a new th- phrase we coined here on the show where our terminology drifts to reflect the prevailing terminology of those who speak most often into our ears and, you know, we watch them speak. And that is that uh, we're talking about entitlements. And so for people like Jesse Hathaway working at the Heartland Institute using the terminology of, using the term entitlement, he's talking about something that you've paid into that you're entitled to receive something from, from the government, hence entitlement. 
Um, but for most of us, when we hear entitlement, we we equate that with some kind of welfare or you know earned income tax credit, something that you're getting from the government because you qualify for it, but it necessarily may not have paid into it. Um, it is there's no dispute about the fact that Social Security is something that people pay into. It's their money, and it it should not be withheld from them. The issue is that anytime we say to government bureaucrats in one era who set up a program that they're going to help Americans by taking their money and saving it for them, boom, that is where the problem started. We cannot trust government bureaucrats not to put their sticky little fingers on our money when they're supposed to be saving it for us. Would you allow a stranger to walk up to you on the street and say, hey, if you write me a check every month, we've never met, I know, and we're not really going to spend any time together. You don't really need to know me. You just need to know that I'm good at saving other people's money for them. I'm going to save your money for you. And then when you're older, I'll give you the money back plus anything that I've accrued in investing it. And I won't charge you anything. I'm just going to take it for you. So, And we'll do it by direct deposit so you don't forget. You wouldn't do that with a stranger. And I don't know, like, how many do I know? I maybe know 500 of the 24 million employees of the federal government. And 500 is a lot. And that's only because I've spent time going back and forth to Washington, D.C. and other places and met them at conferences and large groups so I can say, yeah, I have their business card. I've met them. I've, I've, I've met these people. And even then, I don't know very many government employees well enough. I think I know four that I can name right off the top of my head who I think if they said, I'll invest your money for you, I would give it to them and let them invest it for me. The rest, I wouldn't because I don't know them. And so that's the problem with Social Security. Unelected government bureaucrats deciding what to do with money and then elected officials actually saying, because they know they're not going to be there forever, the ones who got us into this mess are no longer in Congress and will never be held accountable for the fact that they moved money out of these, as Jesse called them, buckets in order to fund other things in the government. And now we're just straight up borrowing the money. We don't even pretend we're going to move it around from this place or that. They just borrow it. Meanwhile, some government employee about three months ago was ordering $900 chairs and those little hoverboards to ride around in the office in and everybody in the office got a bike and everybody got one of those fitness balls to sit on, you know, the exercise ball, whatever they could spend money on that they could dump into cash to get it out of their budget so they could qualify for the same size budget next year that was spent instead of zero based budgeting, which would drop most budgets down significantly. And all of that money could be taken and put back into the social security trust fund. And the answer to social security is it has to be privatized so that the people who are investing your money are held accountable. The reason why you don't see financial managers in the private sector in mass moving your, your 401k money or whatever into some other account to save their business or to do something with it that, that they're not supposed to is because they're subject to civil and legal penalties, criminal penalties, that would mean that they not only go to jail, but they would lose everything that they have, their personal homes, cars, their children's uh, you know, savings accounts for school. Anything that they have is subject to forfeiture and seizure in civil court. And those types of laws prevent these kinds of massive Ponzi schemes and things like that with people's investments in the private sector. And that difference is why the Social Security funds are empty. The, the accounts for Social Security are empty. But 401k plans across the country that are managed by private individuals still have money in them because those private individuals don't want to go to jail. So, you know, the language that we use 
and a terminology drift, it's important to note, but I don't think there are very, very many people out there, certainly I'm not, calling Social Security an entitlement because the intention, the, the intention is, hey, it's not your money. Everybody knows the money in Social Security is paid into by the people who've worked, everyone, whether you're self-employed like myself or, or anyone else, that's not the point. The point is that if we leave it in the control of the government bureaucrats, unelected and elected, the accounts will never be full and people will never ever have the assurance of knowing that the money that they've invested belongs to them, which is why we need to draw down on Social Security and privatize it completely. And I don't know why people are so afraid of that. Other than the only way that they can save because we lack fiscal discipline is that we have to have it taken from us. And there are ways to do that in the private sector too. If you want to save money and you're not talking about Social Security, you can have money automatically drafted out of your account into a savings account or an investment account. And you can set it up so that it's not easy to get to. You don't have a debit card for it. It's not something you can spend. And then you can get in your word and read about fiscal responsibility and self-control and start training yourself to do this yourself, to take care of this yourself. Because the government has shown us that they not only have no care about whether or not they actually do what they've promised to do with our money, but they are not going to be held accountable. They'll never allow themselves to be held accountable for what they've done. Everyone's always shunting it off. Well, the Democrats did it. Okay, yeah, they did. But who's going to jail? Anybody? Who made the decision? The same people who made the decision are out there cranking out the books and convincing people of other things that aren't true, like the global warming, cooling, hoax, you know, ice age, meltdown, volcanic eruption, 2012, whatever. Same people who stole all that money before, they're out still still selling garbage, swamp land, just whatever. It's a problem, and we put, put an end to it by saying I'm, we're all responsible for ourselves. That's how we put an end to it. Um, we have to elect people who want to do right, and we have to stop giving them our money. All right, that's the first hour of the show. You have onenewsnow.com, news and information up next. I'll be right back. 